Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. My name is Jenny. I'm the interim rector here at Emmanuel, and it is so good to be in worship with you today. Uh, this this day in particular, Mother's Day every year, I uh, when it comes around to this day, uh, has, as someone who has children, and it's way harder than I ever thought it would be, it's a very meaningful day. Um, but I also, more than anything, truly think about a woman named Holly, who uh, was a teacher at my middle school, and um, saw me and loved me and showed me Jesus and like is the reason I'm standing here today and was not not a mother to me in the typical sense the traditional sense but um, was a mother to me in every other way and so for for those of you who are here today because of women like that in your life um, I just want to thank God take a moment and just say thank you Lord and for those of you who are that kind of person um, just to say thank you to you I think mothering is a way um, for us to express so much of the heart of God. And it doesn't mean we have to have kids of our own in order to do it. Um, it's something that we can all do. And so to, to all of you ladies out there, I say happy Mother's Day. Thank you for, for mothering the church and, um, and different people in your community in different ways. So thank you. We are going to be in the Gospel of John today in chapter 15. Yikes. Sorry, <laughs> Chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. And I just want to introduce it a little bit before we read because we're going to jump sort of right in the middle of, of Jesus talking. So John 15 is in the middle of sort of what's called the farewell discourse, which is a time in which Jesus, uh, it's at the Last Supper, and Jesus is sharing with his disciples what life is going to be like once he's gone. And then he also prays for his disciples, this beautiful prayer. So this is like chapters long that we get in the Gospel of John that we don't get in the other Gospels around the Lord's Supper. Um, and it's this really tender and beautiful time where we get to hear from Jesus. I'm never, I've never been like a red-letter Bible type of person, except when I get to this part of John, I always think about those Bibles where Jesus' words are in red, and you get to this part in John, and it's like red from beginning to end, you know, it like covers the full page. And that just shows you like how... Uh, special this part in the Bible is, is where we get to hear solely from Jesus for such an extended period of time. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples who don't really fully understand what's going to happen, and yet Jesus is giving them instructions on how they're supposed to live once he uh, dies and resurrects and ascends to be with the Father. And things just go on in a different way after that. Um, so we're jumping sort of right in the middle of, of where he's, he's talking, and um, we'll read this, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so ha have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for these words that sort of move through time and space and minds and hearts from this very special, intimate moment with your disciples into this room. It invites us into that space where you were handing off this precious gift to them and to us. It is always such an honor to, to teach your word, Lord, but especially words like these. And I just stand before you humbled to teach from them and ask you, Jesus, to use me to say what it is that you want to say today. Holy Spirit, move through the words of this text into our hearts this morning and say what you want to say. All of this is for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So like I said, Jesus is in the middle of his farewell address to his disciples. He's about to be betrayed and arrested, and Jesus knows this. And, you know, you can think about it for any of us. If we know that the end is coming and we have, like, you know, one last night with the people that we love, what would we say? That's the picture that we get to see of Jesus speaking in this moment, which makes these words just so precious, so important. And when I think about John writing his gospel, John was the latest written in time. So it's the longest time after Jesus has already ascended. Um, John waits the longest to get his, his gospel written down. And um, when I think about that, I think about the world in which this text was sort of birthed into. And the longer after uh, Jesus ascended, that the text was written. You can imagine the disciples are more and more uh, wondering whether or not this thing is real. Um, it's written into a world of persecuted Christians, of Christians who believed that once Jesus ascended, when he said, I'm coming back, they thought next week. Like I, my New Testament professor always, anytime we read from uh, Paul, it, she would read like a command from Paul and then be like, but but not if Jesus comes back next week. Because that's how like on the heels they thought Jesus was for them in terms of his return. And so the longer it goes out, the more these Christians began to wonder like, what's it all for? Is Jesus really coming back? How do we do this without him? Because there is a way of life in which they lived with him in the flesh that was their whole experience of him. And then all of a sudden he wasn't there in the flesh anymore. He was there in the spirit, which Jesus tells us a couple chapters before this part that we read today. He says, it's good that I go away so that you can receive another advocate, so that you can have the Holy Spirit. So it was a good thing that Jesus went away because we do get the Holy Spirit. And yet these Christians are very real, I think, about the fact that it's just different. It's different being able to like sit in front of Jesus and ask him a question. It's different being able to like grab his hand when you want to get his attention, you know. There's a difference between that life and this one. And so when John, a, a pastor himself, is writing this gospel and sending it out to churches and communities, what he's saying is, um, let me give you the picture of Jesus as he was in the flesh with us, and let me tell you what he said about what we were supposed to do when he's gone. So if you come in today feeling like lost when it comes to how to 
do life as a disciple, or if you feel sort of on the outside of what's going on uh, in, in terms of your spirituality. What we have today is these words of Jesus, a, a gift to us, to tell us how it is that we're supposed to do this. How do we do it when, like, the person that we love we've never seen, as Peter tells us? That's how we're supposed to think about these words today. Um, before we get into the, the metaphor that Jesus gives us of the vine and the branches, I think it's helpful just to say, like, metaphors come to us all throughout the Bible. Metaphors are not just, like, a handy, like, English teacher term, you know, to, like, talk about literature. Um, it's actually a really helpful thing uh, in, in terms of the Bible and understanding God. The things of God are so lofty and too big for us, right? If God really is who God says he is, um, then we're not going to be able to just say the things about God that we want to say in the exact right way or explain concepts about God. And so all throughout the Bible, we're given metaphors in order to understand things. Lauren Winter wrote a book about metaphors in the Bible that's one of my, one of my favorites, um, and it's called Wearing God. You should read it if you haven't. Um, but here's one of the things she says about, about the Bible. If you, like me, picture God in lots of different ways, or if sometimes God seems easy to speak about, and on some days you have no words for God, and sometimes you feel that there are too many words for God, so many that the abundance stumps you, if that is the case, then you are pretty much right in line with how the Bible invites us to imagine God in some very singular ways, in dizzyingly hundreds of ways, and sometimes in no way at all. When we are given metaphors for how to think about God, and we did this a couple weeks ago when we talked about Jesus being a shepherd and us being the sheep, what metaphors do is they're not just helpful pedagogically, which they are, and they're not just good ways to communicate, which they are, uh, but for Jesus, and we're talking about the things of God, they're actually incarnational. When Jesus gives us a metaphor, like a vine and branches, he's taking something that we cannot comprehend, that we cannot hold on to, and giving it to us in terms of things which we can hold on to, and we can actually talk about. And he is in them, his presence is in them in a way that we can't understand, in a sort of sacramental way. So when Jesus tells his disciples, I'm the light of the world, I'm the shepherd of the sheep, I'm the bread of life, or even, uh, mysteriously, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. What Jesus is doing is he's taking a existential sort of very real reality that we can't quite comprehend and puts it like literally sometimes into our hands. It's what we do every single week when we eat communion. Is we're taking something, this metaphor, that's more than just a metaphor. And we're taking it inside of ourselves. So when Jesus gives us this metaphor about the vine and the branches, it's not just a helpful tool for us to learn about how to relate to God. I think there is something actually very mysteriously real about what Jesus is saying about this image and this metaphor. Something incarnational. We can actually find Jesus in it. The real Jesus in this metaphor. So let's look at it. I actually have a diagram for you. Because I'm a visual person, I think visuals are helpful. So here it is. Amazing, right? Yeah, an incredible rendering of a vine. <laughs> um, nonetheless, does the job. So we have, you know, the vine here on the side, which Jesus is, right? He's saying, I am the vine. And he says, we are the branches. So this part that comes off of here, this sort of more flimsy part, um, and the branches grow fruit, right? So that's the image Jesus gives us for what life is like, what he is like, what we are like, what life is like in him, and then also gives us a third image of God, the Father, as the vine grower. 
So what he's saying is that uh, this is us, this is Jesus and his church. And then God somehow stands outside of all of this and uh, helps the plant be what it's supposed to be, you know, uh, helps it grow in the ways that it should. So that's the metaphor. What Jesus is telling us with this is he's showing us how tied up our life really is in him. He's not just saying it's, it's like this. It's somewhat like a vine and branches. He's saying the only way that we can grow, that we can have the life that we were designed to have is when we live out of Jesus. We actually get everything that we have from him. We might as well acknowledge it, he's telling us, and live into what that actually means. I think this metaphor is the answer for his disciples of how is this going to work? How are we supposed to be Christians without Jesus right in front of us in a way that we can grab onto and talk to? So he gives us this metaphor. So we launch sort of right into the metaphor in this text, and we hear from Jesus from the very outset about pruning which I think is very bold of Jesus because pruning is not something we like to think about or talk about. It's later on when he says the, the very nice things like, abide in me like I abide in you. He starts with saying like, sometimes things are going to get cut off of you. And I think this is because it must have been something that was a great comfort to the disciples to know that they could go to Jesus and ask Jesus what direction they should go in their life. And he would tell them, um, this isn't working for you. You should do something else like this. We want that sort of direction and guidance in our life. I think they were very at home in Jesus with this reality for them. So Jesus right off the bat tells them, this isn't going away. When I go away, this reality you have is not going away. You are still going to be guided and led and taken care of by God. So Jesus begins by saying, he removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. Now, what he's talking about here is this tendency for vines, especially, to grow wild when they're untended. They grow sort of like straggly, entangled. They can even grow in on themselves. You can even, vines can even choke its own self to where it literally can't grow. The life sort of like can't move through it anymore. And so when Jesus says he removes every branch in me that bears no fruit, it's this sort of wildness of growing out into the world that Jesus is talking about. And who of us hasn't experienced this in our life, you know? Who of us hasn't had a, a branch sort of cut off from us? I, um, I think about these types of situations all the time, and it's easier in hindsight to see a lot of them. You know, one of the ones that, like, was the earliest for me that I can sort of pinpoint in my life was um, of God cutting off a branch in my life was I knew I was supposed to leave the job I was at when I was in my early 20s, right out, out of college. Knew I was supposed to leave the job. Didn't. Anybody been there? And then I got laid off after a few months of this. And I was so mad. And I remember like driving home because it was like an hour away. And I remember driving home and God being like, receive this as a grace to you. You know, you did not need to be there anymore. And it was hard. It didn't make it not hard, you know. But it was like one of those situations in which like the thing was just cut off right in front of me and ended up being the most, one of the most gracious things God could have done for me at that time in my life. We all experience different things like this of God removing these sorts of branches. You ever break up with someone? been broken up with, you know, branches getting cut off, things that aren't having fruit in your life. They're a grace to us in those moments. I think the worst, and also sometimes the very best thing for some of us, when we get caught, you ever been caught doing something, cheating, 
on a test, or even like more seriously, getting arrested. I've heard stories from people where those moments were the most important, pivotal moments in their life, redemptive moments, things that you think could have no good thing come out of them are actually the best moments for some people. When God takes a direction that you're going in in life that will cause you to only grow in on yourself and bear no fruit and it gets cut off, it's painful. But it then sets us on a trajectory where we can actually be the people that we're called to be. When I think about this this reality, I think about... Um, that story in uh, the Dawn, Voyage of the Dawn Treader because I'm an Anglican priest and we only think in terms of Chronicles of Narnia. So my apologies. Um, but I'm, I, think about, I was thinking about the story all week of uh, this boy, Eustace, who's just an awful, awful boy who like starts going on these adventures with, uh, with the other kids and goes into Narnia and is such a turd that he literally turns into a dragon because he's so dragon-like on the inside. And he's horrified by this and sees himself in the, 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 reflect, the water reflection and starts to try to, like, scratch off these scales. And he can't do it. There's just more and more scales underneath. And it's not until Aslan comes and s- sort of takes his Jesus claws, you know, this lion figure, and really digs into these scales that they're finally able to come off. And what Eustace says in this moment as Aslan is doing this is he says, the first tear was so deep I thought it had gone right into my heart. And so when I talk about God pruning things in us, and it's like we can all share like silly stories where like, yeah, that was really, you know, so glad God cut that off, you know, that relationship, whatever. Um, But these things can really hurt. They can feel really deep. But what we can trust and what Jesus is trying to tell us here is that we can imagine this and imagine, you know, how intuitive the vine is, not very, and imagine God standing in front of it, looking over the whole creation of it and knowing exactly what to do, being the person who has the perspective and the wisdom and knows that this is not the way that you should go. And out of the grace of his heart, cuts those things off in us so that we can grow in the ways that we are meant to. It hurts sometimes. But it's because he loves us that he redirects us and he prunes us. The second part of what Jesus is saying in terms of pruning, which I find so fascinating, is that even the branches that bear fruit, God prunes so that they can bear more fruit. So vines and fruiting plants sometimes overfruit. You ever had this? Have you ever gardened and had this problem? And then the fruit, because there's so much on there and all the resources are being used to just make more and more and more fruit, the fruit doesn't actually taste good. There's not enough like resources to go into all the fruit. And so what Jesus is saying is sometimes God cuts off even fruiting branches, not just the wild ones, but even the ones that are bearing fruit because they're not bearing it in the way that they should. My, I was talking to my husband about this text this week, and he's like, honest to God, son of a Kansas farmer. So I ask him about things like vines when they come up in the, in the Bible, you know. And he's, I was telling him about this part in particular, and he said, oh, suckers. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, the, like, the little fruit that's not going to taste good, they're taking all the resources from the good fruit, so you rip them off. Those are called suckers. And... I've been thinking about that ever since then because I'm like, man, if that's not a great word for the things in my life that I need God to take out of me, you know, 
And like the posture that I really do bring in prayer sometimes. And a helpful name for it. Like, God, take the suckers out of my life. You know? Come and remove this stuff in me. And I think that this is actually harder sometimes than the, the wild stuff that God can prune in us. Because sometimes all we can see is that it's fruit. We're not really able to see that it's not the exact kind of fruit we're meant to bear. And so when things in our life that we think are producing fruit get cut off, it can feel really confusing and really hard to understand. But God, the farmer, the vine dresser, stands outside of our situation and knows how to make us grow the kind of fruit that we are made to grow in all of God's wisdom. I find a lot of comfort um, that Jesus says this in the first person about himself. He says, he removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. And I think that it's important that he says it in first person like this because it tells us a reality in our life. I think we can come stand before this metaphor and this image and think this is the way God cuts sin out of my life exclusively. If it was the way God cuts sin out of someone's life, it probably wasn't, shouldn't have applied to Jesus. That perhaps even for him, the sinless one, when God pruned things in him that bore no fruit and even maybe cut off good fruit in him that wasn't the best kind of fruit, that for you and me, maybe it's, it's not about our sin entirely. It's just the way it goes as the life of a Christian. There are maybe really good things in your life that aren't the best things for you. And sometimes Jesus has to do something about that so that we can be the kinds of people we're created to be. When I think about, like, Jesus getting something cut off in him by God so that he can be a better person or the better version of himself, I'm like, what does that even look like? One of the things I just thought maybe this is one of them, was marriage. That for Jesus, marriage would have been a perfectly fruitful option for him. And yet, the other fruit in his life would not been, have been the kinds of fruit it was supposed to be if he had been married. And so God called him into this life where the fruit maybe looked different than you and I would think is the most fruitful version of who he was. And that's true for all of us. And it's so hard to pinpoint for us What's the good fruit? What's the bad? What's the medium fruit? You know what I mean? And that's why we have to trust this image and trust that God is standing back from all of it and doing the work that needs to be done in our life. Like we sang in the song, when I trust you, I don't need to understand. That there's something about God standing back from it all that we can place all of our trust in and believe that God is doing the work in our life that's going to create us to be the people we need to be. And when I think about this idea of fruit, too, it's the last thing I'll say about pruning, <laughs> about fruit is that when God prunes something for it to bear good fruit, what is fruit for? It's for eating, right? The, the fruit that he wants to bring about in me isn't for me. It can benefit me, but it's so that the people around me in my life can eat off of what God is doing in me, that I can give life to other people. That is why God wants to do the work in us so that we can actually bless other people with the fruit that's coming out of us that he's pruning and he's doing that work for. Thank you. <laughs> so let's talk about abiding. He says, abide in me as I abide in you. 
And this idea of abiding in him, so we remember we are this branch, and he's telling us that we come out of this vine, and out of, outside of this vine we can, we can do nothing. So we might as well make our home in him, he's saying. Might as well abide in me. In the Bible, this, is, this word comes up a lot, especially for John in all of his writings. He loves to talk about abiding, which I find really fascinating. Um, I think that for John, uh, John was also the one, if you remember, who at the Last Supper was like laying on Jesus. Um, that image is given to us from him. So for him, abiding in Jesus was a very normal thing. Finding his home in Jesus, as Eugene Peterson puts it in this text, Jesus says, find your home in me as I have found my home in you. John understood the sense, sense of mutuality in relationship with Jesus. And when I think about this idea of abiding with him, making my home in him, I think for so many of us, we think of spirituality as us constantly moving towards Jesus, constantly going to find him. Like Jesus is somewhere, and if I read my Bible and if I pray, I'll finally get to wherever that is. I'll just move towards that place. Have you ever had a friendship that was totally one-sided? I had a friend, I had this experience. So I had a friend who I loved so much, and, uh, but everything was at her house. Or everything was like she had orchestrated it and we were going to that, that place. And then I had a baby, which, as you know, changes things. I could no longer just constantly go to her and go to that place. And then the relationship totally died off. And I was shocked by this and saddened because I really did love this person. But if there is not mutuality in relationship, it's not a relationship. And so I think the beautiful thing that Jesus is saying here is, I want you to abide in me. But because I'm abiding in you, I'm already there. Wherever you think it is that I am, that you're trying to go find my home so that you can make yourself at home there, I'm already with you in the most intimate of ways. There's a mutuality to our relationship with Jesus. I think this moment is an invitation to relax in him. I think that of that scripture often that work out your faith with fear and trembling. And I think so many of us, has, that's, that's the place, maybe not consciously, but we live out of when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. That sense of relaxing in who he is and resting in him and not just working for him like a boss, you know, not just constantly moving towards him. We need to grow in this understanding that everything we do comes out of him. Everything we do comes out of who he is and what he has done for us. As we pray in the prayer of consecration, it's by him and with him and in him. I think God is inviting us, some of, some of us in this room today, to learn how to relax in him. To believe that he has already made his home in us. And therefore, we can be at home right where we are. Right as we are and who we are. John, like I said, loves this word abide. Um, and when I, it makes total sense to me, not just because he was the one who like relaxed on Jesus at the Last Supper, but also at the end of his life, he ends up alone, imprisoned on the island of Patmos, and he writes the most incredible book in the Bible, possibly, Revelation, has a very real experience with Jesus that he gives to the church. And it's because after everything he loved had been taken away from him, all the pruning you can imagine, he still knew how to be at home and who Jesus was. And he found such comfort there and was able to still bless the world even though everything he loved had been taken away from him. They couldn't take Jesus away from him. 
So when John tells us this story of Jesus saying, abide in me, John knows how to do that. He did it with his own life. So lastly, I just want to say, in terms of keeping my commands, um, Jesus says, if you want to abide in me, you must keep my commands. And I don't think this is like the last ditch effort for Jesus to be like, if you want to abide in me, don't do dumb stuff. Don't sin. What does he say is his new commandment I give to you a couple chapters earlier? He says, a new command I give you that you'd love one another. So when Jesus says, abide in me, and if you keep my commands, you will abide in me, I think what he's saying is that mutuality and relationship that we find in him, that mutuality and intimacy in our relationship with him, we can also find Jesus in the same mutuality and intimacy of our relationships with other people. When we learn to love as Jesus loves, when we really step into the hard places of relationship and we continue on in the ways that we're meant to, the faithfulness of God, when we mimic that in our own lives with our own relationships, we learn how to abide in him. We find the sort of uh, spirituality of relationships when we do that. I've been thinking a lot about how... Um, how fragile and fragmented our relationships are in the world that we have today. It's like we just are, it's totally fine and glorified to be with someone as long as they make you happy and then end it because that's, that must have been the full extent of the relationship, you know? And it makes me think like Jesus had given the command, this new command I give you, that you would enjoy one another. What a terrible command! Because once we stop enjoying one another, then it's over. And that's not the command that he gives. He says, love one another in the way that he loves. How does he love? To the end. Faithfully, all the way through, never giving up. He says, you will find me when you love each other in this way. I have found Jesus in other people. I think a lot of us especially those of us who grew up in like quiet time culture. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have a quiet time. You should, you should. But we have this sense that like that's where I meet Jesus and everything else is just me giving back to the world. And it's just not true. That is a good starting place. But the way people bring the Spirit's presence into your life is so important is going to be probably the main way you experience Jesus in your life. Love in relationship with others is how we somehow move into this abiding with Jesus. The way people have loved me has made me see and know Jesus in ways that I never could have otherwise. I had an experience yesterday, actually, that um, was a very holy experience for me. I ran a 5K yesterday morning, and I don't say that to brag. I'm barely standing today. <laughs> I barely made it through. Um, and I love running. It feels like a, a thin place for me. I feel like I can sense the Lord there. And uh, this thing happened to me yesterday that was one of those things. So I'm running. I'm listening to Midnight's, obviously. And um, I'm about a mile in, doing, doing fine. And someone from our church comes and runs up next to me and says hello. And, um, and we chat for a minute. His name is Brent. We chat for a minute, and he, um, he just was... We were just talking, and he was like, you know, this is the hardest part of the race right here, the road we were running up. It was like straight uphill. He was like, this is the hardest part, but it, it, it gets easier from here. And 
it was just one of those moments that I didn't know that I needed, you know, of him saying that to me. And, um, and then he was like, do you want to keep running together or do you want to like separate? And we're both introverts. So I had no problem being like, let's separate. <laughs> and, um, so he was like, cool. He also assumed he was going to be faster than me. I didn't want to hold him back. So anyways, so we, we like part ways, you know, put our headphones back in and keep running. And I realized that he, we're kind of running at the same pace. He gets a little bit ahead of me and I decide, okay, if he's going to run at this sort of same pace that I've been running at, I'm just going to stay behind him. I'm going to let him be my pacer. You ever have a pacer at a run? They like set the pace for you and you keep your eye on them and you try to keep up with them. Because what a pacer does is helps you finish in the way that you want to. And so Brent was my pacer. And I followed him all the way to the finish line, and it was hard at the end because he was going faster than I wanted him to. <laughs> and then he turned towards me. Well, it was a very special moment because karma came on right at the end, and it was just beautiful. And Brent turns towards me as the song comes on in my head and, um, and says, let's finish together. And so we ran the last, like, you know, tenth of a mile together through the finish line. It makes me take a selfie with him at the end. And... It was just this incredible moment that I, like I said, didn't know that I needed of what life is supposed to be like as a Christian, where we intend to sort of work out our own salvation in our own Christian life all the time and forget what it looks like, what it's meant to look like to be in community with people and to be a part of the church. If you have someone in your life who is doing this thing in the way that you want to do it, you can follow them to the finish, and you can finish like you want to. That's what the church is supposed to be like. We're all supposed to have people in our life like this that are showing us sort of the way home and doing it in the way that we want to. Living out this version of the Christian life that we want to live, and we can watch them all the way there, and they can, you know, finish the race with us. When I think about Jesus saying, abide in my love, sometimes it's all I have to abide in the person next to me. And yesterday, I abided in Brent Black <laughs> all the way across that finish line. And I just think that Jesus says, that's okay. That's actually what I'm commanding you to do. That you can abide in my love by abiding in the people around you who can show you my love in the most real and tangible way. So when he gives us this, when he gives his disciples this before he goes away, He's saying, not only am I giving you the spirit, my presence with you all the time, I'm also giving you the gift of your brothers and sisters, of the people around you who are going to carry you through the end. You will find me in them. You will find me there. So thank you, Lord. <laughs>